Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We love having you here, and it's our mission to bring you all the latest and greatest tips, skills, and know-how to make you the best that you can be. We know that you have it in you, and we're going to show you how. Now, now, let's get started. Hi, TED Talks Daily listener. So we've been sharing podcasts from the TED Audio Collective for the last nine Fridays now. And now we thought we'd have a little bit of fun. You're about to hear another great episode of a TED podcast, but I can't tell you which one. We're randomly serving different episodes to our global audience. You can check back in later or on a different app and you might get something different. I can promise what you'll hear will be true to TED, a curated podcast for the curious, whether it's about business, design, science, or philosophy. If you can handle the mystery, stick around. And to dive into our entire portfolio, head to audiocollective.ted.com. I'd love to know which episode you get. Tweet at us or email podcasts at ted.com. We promise we read every message. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive, one of the country's leading providers of auto insurance. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you say what kind of coverage you're looking for and how much you want to pay. And Progressive will help you find options that fit within your budget. Use the Name Your Price tool and start an online quote today at Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What would it take for us to try to make the beginning or end of this podcast be Afro bubblegum? The end would always have to be hopeful. Always. That's it. And then the rest of it should be filled with joy. I'm Salim Rashamwala, and from TED, this is Far Flung. In each episode, we visit a different place around the world to understand ideas that flow from there. Shout out to Women Will, a Grow With Google program, for sponsoring this episode. This week from Nairobi, the Afro bubblegum movement, and why making art that tells stories of joy and frivolity is a human right. This could all seem obvious. Of course we need joyous stories from everyone, everywhere. But it's not always easy to make that happen. Okay, since we were asked to start with joy, there's this form of joyous art literally driving around Nairobi. We give you... Matatus. You can't get bored while you're in the Matatus. There's good music. There's good graffiti, you're comfortable. It's not safe, I just love the vibe. Like you go in, there's loud music, there's screens everywhere, LCDs. I think Matatu are like at the heart of Nairobi's culture. Matatus are vans for public transport, but so much more. When a Matatu pulls up to get you, it's loud, both in straight up music, but also the colors and graphics. And if you're at a crowded station, the conductors are calling out to you, trying to get your business, get you into their bus. And once you pick one and you step inside, the music gets even louder. Whether it's a 14-seater or a big 33-seater, the music's probably knocking in every seat. And you can probably see a couple LCD screens, CCT cameras and monitors, a flashing light or two. And when that thing starts moving, 
those Matatu conductors might do actual physical stunts on the outside of the bus. Again, as it's moving, which is wild. So people seeing the bus go by are seeing all that. And those super bright graphics on the outside, they might include current celebrities like Kenyan marathon runners or Drake. Here's Moha Graphics, great name by the way, one of the most famous designers working on Matatus. In Kenya, we have a culture, it's like you have a shop, you have to decorate it for attraction. It's the same with Matatu. Matatu people, we decorate Matatus for attraction and a level of competition. Every Matatu, they are competing with another Matatu, different Matatus, different designers, different routes. Anyone who is trending, be it local, international, we do it. It's like a newspaper for people to see. And it's like moving around everywhere. So some things you may not see on TV, but you can see them on Matatus. I love the idea that Matatus are giant daredevil-covered newspapers zipping through the city. You can actually draw a pretty straight line from Matatus to a history that we're going to get into. The history of people finding ways to work around colonial constraints. Nairobi was pretty much a settler city in the colonial period. And then after independence, more and more Kenyans or black Kenyans were allowed into the city and people needed a way to get to work. And so that's how the Matatu started. That's Dr. Kenda Mutongi, a historian of modern Africa at MIT, who wrote a book on Matatus. I would say that the Matatus really kind of helped in the expansion of the city because they were able to transport people who lived farther and farther away from the city centre into the city. There is absolutely no corner, I think, but when I say that, I mean it, that Matatus haven't been. So that Matatu energy is tied to the entire city. And Afro Bubblegum draws from the creative energy of that city. That voice you heard calling for joy at the top of the episode, that was Kenyan filmmaker Wanuri Kahu. Nairobi's glorious. The Nairobi motto is the city in the sun. And today it surely, surely feels like that. It is hot, it is bright, it is sunshiny. It is tropical. We have the Nairobi National Park that sits in the heart of the city center so that you can go and see a lion or a giraffe if you'd like. We have a great wealth of humor when it comes to the people here. We are so full of joy and hope and love. That City in the Sun is where Wanuri set her 2018 film, Rafiki. And it caused a huge ongoing national debate, which we'll get to. But as to why it came to exist... I wanted to make a love story. I think that we don't have enough love stories coming from this side of the world. Let's make a pact that we will never be like any of them down there. Instead, we're going to be something real. Something real. Rafiki is a love story about two girls who fall in love despite uh, the angst they cause within the community about their forbidden love, they end up having to choose between 
their love and their safety. Um, and it always reminds me of a line in a Lucille Clifton poem that asks, what have you traveled towards more than your own safety? And so through the film, I try and answer that question. What do the girls travel towards more than their own safety? At first, the love story it tells couldn't be seen by Kenyans. Once the film was released, the film was banned in Kenya, which means it couldn't be broadcast, it couldn't be distributed, it couldn't be exhibited, and it couldn't be possessed within the Republic of Kenya. The film was banned and remains banned to this day. I know we shouldn't have been surprised, but we were still incredibly disappointed because... Not only do we love our, our country, truly love our country, but we also believe in the mandate that was set out, which is our constitution. And our constitution allows us freedom of expression. The classification board wanted me to change the ending of the film because they felt that the ending of the film was too hopeful. And they thought that the ending should be remorseful and when I refused to change the ending of the film, they banned it. So they said by keeping the ending of the film as is, which is a joyful ending, which is in keeping with my ethos on Afro-Bubblegum um, exploration of African life, it said that it normalized and glorified homosexual behavior. We actually got to talk to Dr. Ezekiel Mutua, who's the head of the Kenya Film Classification Board, to ask him why he banned the film. Kenya, for instance, does not allow homosexuality. And while we know homosexuals exist and we know they have a right as human beings to be treated with dignity and their rights to be protected, if you're doing films about that subject, then you cannot glorify those kind of things against the law. I do not see any pride in pushing the boundaries of creativity if it's going against the law. So he's saying it's okay for a movie's characters to be gay, but gay characters can't end up happy or hopeful or joyous. And so Wanuri's joyous film was blocked by the government. You said before that you feel the film is, is a love story and that's not a political story. Could you talk a bit about what you mean when you say that and how much you have to have in your mind the environment you're creating the story in when you create a story like this? Or if you try to keep the two pieces separate, the political reception and the creation of the story itself? I think when you're creating, you're not thinking about the reception, you're thinking about the creation first. When I say that it's not a political story, I think this is what I mean. Love has become associated with politics depending on who you love and what color you are and what religion you are. So a white straight couple, you wouldn't call that love political. But if you change the hue of the color of the person, <laughs> if you change the race, the ethnicity, the religion of the person, then it starts being called political. So when you have two black women loving each other, it stops being love. It's just called political, as if what they're doing is an act of politics, not an act of love. <laughs> Basically, work outside of what's perceived as mainstream is perceived as political, no matter what it's doing. And sometimes the world just forces joyous work into political situations. 
And that political situation has its roots in the same colonial history we touched on earlier. I was surprised to learn that Kenya has anti-homosexuality laws that were first imposed by British colonizers in 1897. It turns out that in the 19th century, Britain was particularly aggressive in outlawing same-sex relations, even more so than other European settlers at the time. Side note, Kenyan history is not alone in this. For example, America also had anti-homosexuality laws. Most of these nations, after independence, just sort of kept the bans in place, Kenya included. Wanuri says the effects of colonialism were way more than just legal. I think our joy was taken away. (laughs) I think people tried to cut our joy and make us less than. I think people tried to subdue us because we danced too frenetically. We laughed too loudly. And there began to be laws against that. There began to be laws against the way you dance, the poems you tell, the gatherings you have the cultures you've grown with. There began to be laws about the languages you speak. They took away our language. How can you express yourself without your own language? So, yes, some of it is as a result of that. But when you look further back, you see all of the glory of joy. You see all of the traditions that existed, some that we've kept some that we haven't, like the Gerowal tradition, where the men dress up and paint their faces in these elaborate colors as part of the Harvest Festival celebration. And they make really incredible faces. And the women judges circle them. And depending on who looks the most beautiful, the most elegant, the most who makes the most elaborate, strange face, they get to win a night of pleasure with the judge that chooses them. You know what I mean? Like those are joyful, fantastic traditions that existed before colonialism, you know? I think that while, yes, there have been things that have been suppressed as a result of colonialism and we're moving through that, I think that now we're responding to looking for those moments that we may have lost and those traditions that we may have lost, but they've always existed. So, yeah, in the story she's telling here, it's not that joy is just mysteriously lacking. Like she specifies, many joyous things were actively taken, and joyous images are part of that, hence the need for a movement. Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Women Will, a Google initiative. We are spotlighting women all over the world who are finding new ways of impacting their communities. Renata Alexandra grew up in Rio de Janeiro. Brazilian women have enormous strength. They are leaders in their families, leaders in the community. Renata knows about strength. She went through medical school while working three jobs and raising two kids and, at the same time, surviving an abusive marriage. He strangled me and I thought, God, I can die here. So I I decided that I had to change my city and learn how to defend myself. Renata started a new life in the north of Brazil and she started studying Krav Maga, a martial art that was created for self-defense. I love it. 
since the beginning because uh, I saw that I could do something to defend myself. I could do something to be alive. What was it that made you feel love for it? When you have training your body, you are also training your mind. Every class you do, you go away from that a little stronger. I see. The more you know you can kill someone, the less aggressive you become. But protecting herself wasn't Renata's only goal. Working as a gynecologist and talking with her patients, she saw how many other women were in abusive relationships. As a doctor, I have empathy to their stories. I say, I live it too. It's not only you. That was the great plan. How I could, as a doctor, mix self-defense. So Renata trained to become the first female Krav Maga instructor in the northeast region of Brazil. But when she started teaching, all of her students were men. She wanted to figure out how to get more women in her classes. When I did the training Grow with Google, they gave me tools to, to improve my work and to find the specific public that I wanted. Women in areas that I knew that the incidence of female murders occurs. Wow. You were actually finding places where women were likely to be in domestic abuse situations or in aggressive marriages? Yes, a lot of it. <laughs> Renata has now taught self-defense to hundreds of women. She uses Google My Business and Google Maps to target areas where violence against women is high. And then she works with women's shelters, attorneys, and domestic violence organizations to find more students from those areas. I am the first, but I am a mirror for any woman that wants to change her lives. Our physical survival is the only thing we, we really have for every woman of the world. They have the right of self-defense. Renata was able to fill her Krav Maga classes with women from areas of Brazil prone to domestic violence and in need of confidence and self-defense. Thanks to the Women Will Initiative, Renata and others like her are able to access the digital skills they need to make an impact on the world. Active in 48 countries, this Grow With Google program helps inspire, connect, and educate millions of women. Learn more and join in the conversation on Instagram, at womenwill. That's at W-O-M-E-N-W-I-L-L. Our country's motto is peace, love, and unity. I've never been anywhere that wants to just embody the spirit of that, like this country. And our job is to try and, and work our way towards that. And in the process, remember that we are the highest versions of ourselves and continuously see that as an image rather than images that are so often in the media about hate or anger or violence, you know? We are glorious. We are joyful. We are resilient. We are resplendent. And I think those images should be our homing beacon. And that's really why I started thinking about ideas about Afro bubblegum. 
What's cool about the word Afro bubblegum is that as soon as you hear it, you kind of get what it is. Afro bubblegum is fun, fierce, and frivolous African art. It's art for art's sake. It's art for the sake of joy. I felt that we were missing out on being joyous and allowing ourselves to be joyous. Because so often, especially when you decide to become an artist from this side of the world, instead of being something more serious like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever your family expects of you, they expect you to make serious work. And she felt the weight of what that seriousness should be. And she'd seen that seriousness disproportionately represented in stories that came out of Africa. Stories of war and hunger or corruption or disease, as if our stories are only about overcoming. And our stories are are never about joy. (laughs) And if we don't see ourselves as, as people of joy and we don't represent our own images as images of joy, then how do we know we're worthy? If seeing is believing and we don't see ourselves as joyful people, how do we know that that is something that we can work towards or we can attain or something that belongs to us. So I started to look for joy in our art and saw that it had always existed. We've always been a people of joy and and we should celebrate that. Um, And and Afro-Bubblegum was part of that conversation. Do you feel like Afro-Bubblegum kind of had to start in Nairobi or that there's something fundamental about Nairobi that's tied to Afro-Bubblegum? I think Afro-Bubblegum had to start in Africa. Because there isn't any city that I've been to where you don't look at the history of the culture that has been in that country and see joy. So if you go to Senegal and you look at the way people dance, you'll see the joy there. If you go to Rwanda and see the way that the beautiful traditional hair and hair designs that the women used to wear, you see joy there. Afro-bubblegum is an African concept. Could you tell me a bit about how you chose the words that you use to describe Afro-bubblegum. So Afro-bubblegum is fun, fierce, and frivolous works of art coming from the continent. It has to have joy in it. It has to have an element of, of whimsy. It has to have an element of playfulness. That's what I consider fun. Fierce, I feel, has to be, is, is the strength and resilience, and not in the sense of, oh, look at them overcoming Look at what they have gone through. Not in that sense, but the ability to rise to every challenge and overcome it. That kind of resilience. I feel like that is joy. That is like the power and the pillar and the backbone and the strength of joy is, is, is that fierceness, that resilience, you know, the ability to move forward regardless of what has happened, the ability to hope again and again and again past heartbreak. That's resilience. We have the right to be frivolous. We have the right to be like the cat in the hat. You know what I mean? So to allow for people to be frivolous, to try and fail, to experiment and backfire without the need for it to mean something, I think is really, really important. So that's why the word frivolous means so much. I can definitely relate to the feeling that you have to do things that are representing a people in your work. Just having a Muslim name in America makes me feel the weight of representation sometimes. And it can be kind of freeing to let yourself go from feeling like you're representing the struggle all the time. 
Like, I kind of want Islamo bubblegum to be a thing. Someone out there can think of a better name for that. Anyway, I was curious how the whole Afro bubblegum concept started. It came about as a result of a conversation with other artists. Um, I believe Madonna Drama Queen was part of that conversation. Blinky Bill was part of that conversation. And so we started talking about why don't we have the right to being like pop and bubblegum, like, you know, Afro bubblegum. And that's how it came up. And I saw you made almost like a Bechdel test of the specific rules. Could you tell me about those rules? Yeah, we have a test. It has three questions. In your piece of art are two or more Africans sick or dying, hopeless or lost, or in need of saving? And if the answer is yes, then your work is not Afro bubblegum. One of the other artists that Wanuri mentioned as being there from the beginning of Afro Bubblegum is Bill Salanga, a.k.a. Blinky Bill. How would I describe my music? That's always been a hard question for me to answer. If a gun was put to my head, I'd be like, I'm an electronic African rapper and singer. And that will probably change the next time you ask me. Okay, it's a hard thing to describe. But is it Afro bubblegum? In the spirit of it, yes. I'd consider myself a part of that category. Like I agree with the sentiment of Afro bubblegum. There should be room for African creatives to just make, you know? And sometimes it's frivolous, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's really well thought of sometimes it's not well thought of and that's what makes it cool i don't think everything has to always have a deeper meaning a brief digression because i have to let him talk about a phrase that makes me crazy i strongly dislike the term world music for me it's always felt kind of like a box where let's put everyone who who's not from Europe or America. But the world is becoming smaller. Like when I'm traveling in different places, I hear so much African music. So it's like we're no longer in that box. To me, it's an archaic term that needs to be done away with quickly. For a long time, Kenyans used to get a lot of music from elsewhere. But right now we are getting a lot more Kenyans making music that Kenyans are consuming. We are discovering ourselves in relation to the world in that sense, but also we're consuming a lot more of our own music than we have been in a long time. Bill just mentioned that he feels it's been a while since Kenyans were consuming Kenyan music which kind of gets us back to that colonialism we were talking about earlier and how it shapes what stories are told. When we left off with the story of Rafiki, the film was completely banned in Kenya. But being banned in Kenya doesn't stop directors from going international. Even though it was banned at home, Rafiki became the first Kenyan film to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. If you can premiere at Cannes, you might be in the running for an Oscar. But there's a catch. In order to qualify for the Oscars, the film needs to be screened in its home country. So Wanuri sued the Kenya Film Classification Board, claiming they suppressed freedom of expression. We managed to get the ban lifted for seven days, which was the exact number of days we needed to qualify. It was a glorious moment when that happened. 
the film was screened in Kenya, which is a beautiful, 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 beautiful moment to have people be able to watch the images that we so longed for them to watch on their screens. We managed to sell out almost every single screening. People flocked to it. So suing the Kenya Film Classification Board got it seen at home in Kenya, which even just for seven days is a huge win. Kenyans saw it in Kenya. And since then, it's gone on to play at theaters around the world. In most countries, you can even rent it online. Go watch it. I did. The movie's great. So there's this interesting push and pull in all of this, the making of what Wanuri describes as frivolous art. She says she's not intending it to be political, and I believe her, but depending on where you're from, who you are, and what the world has handed you, the steps in getting frivolous things actually made can sound very not frivolous. It's work. All those historical forces we've been talking about, all those systems they put in place, you got to get past that. But Wanuri said Nairobi is going through an artistic renaissance of sorts with independent music, film, art, and new festivals. She's excited. And as of when we last talked to her, Wanuri is still fighting to get the Kenyan ban on her film fully lifted. But she's committed and in no way giving up on joyous work. If somebody stops your ability to make work, then you push them aside and you continue to make your work. Because if I don't at least try to battle people who are in the way and impeding our progress in our ability to tell stories, then how can I ask anybody else to? Story is what gives us life, it's what gives us memory, it's what gives us identity, it's what makes us. Okay, if you remember way back at the beginning, for something to be Afro bubblegum... The end would always have to be hopeful. So, on that note... I'd love to project more hopeful, radical hope. Ideas that are full of awakened curiosity that help us think in new ways, that help us value Africa in new ways, because I really, truly think that once we begin to see Africa in a new light, it will help globally with many, many injustices that we still face. Okay, now to double down on joyousness, back to Blinky Bill for our outro music. Far Flung with Salim Rushamwala is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for TED. Our production staff includes Sabrina Farhi, Sally Chum, Maeve Francis, Ida Holinambi, Tevin Sudi, Huete Gitana, Kim Naderfane Peterson, Elise Flanahasset, Angela Chang, and Michelle Quint. With the guidance of Roxanne Highlash and Colin Helms. Our fact checker is Julia Dickerson. Ad stories are produced by Transmitter Media. Very special thanks to Mathoni Drummer Queen and Blinky Bill for letting us use their joyous music in this episode. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. Special thanks to our sponsor, Women Will, a Grow with Google program. I'm Salim Rashamwala.
TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a returning guest and fan favorite, uh, Delian Asparohav of Founders Fund and Varda, and a new guest uh, and portfolio CEO to both Delian and myself at Village Global, Chris Power of, of Hadrian. Chris, uh, Delian, great to, great to chat with you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having us. And of course, this is an official based in Miami podcast, part of Miami Tech Week, uh, and, and couldn't, be, couldn't be more thrilled. Um, All three of us are in Miami right now, baby. <laughs> exactly. That's it. So, 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 Chris, uh, why don't we start with uh, with with introductions? Why don't you give a background on what is Hadrian and how did the idea come to come to be born? Yeah. So, at, at Hadrian, we're the ultimate goal is to build the alien dreadnought, which is automated space defense factories. Version one of that is a factory in LA, primarily serving launch vehicle companies and satellite companies. Um, and basically, the goal is to reduce the cost of advanced manufacturing in the States by an order of magnitude. Um, and what we do, if we get that right, is speed up everyone in advanced manufacturing, uh, you know, two or three times faster. So everyone from SpaceX to VADA to Planet Labs can build everything that they're building two or three times faster. And, you know, we are the Archimedes lever to build that makes everyone, yeah, go faster. Yeah. And, and, and Delian, why don't you introduce, uh, you came on the podcast, you know, uh, over a year ago and, and we did an episode on, on space. But since then, you, you've co-founded uh, Varda. So why don't you uh, give a description for, for what Varda is and how you came to start that? Yeah, so uh, Varda is incubated at Founders Fund. So I split my time between uh, you know both. Uh, Varda is basically making the world's first space factory, which in some ways, when you hear it, sounds like similar to Chris's pitch, <laughs> but it's actually quite, quite different. What we're doing is we're basically taking a set of materials that have a ton of benefit from, from being manufactured in a microgravity environment. So we take raw materials, bring them to orbit on a satellite, manufacture them up there and then bring it back down and sell it to our customers. Uh, and so that's where, you know, Hadrian's super helpful is there are many aspects of our, uh, you know, satellite and our factory that are up there that can have really long lead times and uh, not be at the quality bar that we want. And basically Hadrian helps both with the quality as well as the lead times on being able to get those metal parts in-house. And and what was your thesis uh, for, for, for Hadrian in terms of uh, why were you so excited to, to back it and, and how did you think about it? Yeah, I mean... It's, it's been incredibly clear from working in this industry now even more closely via Varda, but also from a lot of my friends at SpaceX that this entire industry of aerospace and defense, especially when you need really high grade parts, is dependent on this just like large and very fragmented supply chain of basically like mom and pop machinist family shops. They're basically set up like back in like the Apollo era. They're effectively still run by the same guys that are now effectively like reaching retirement. And so it's like at Varda, if we needed like a really top tier sort of, you know, mechanical part made, you end up basically like handing a 55 year old guy like a USB stick. You don't hear from him for like, you know, six to eight weeks. And then you hope that you basically get a part that you actually want. 
And so when Chris came in and pitched it, it was in some ways like the easiest no brainer of like, you know, Varda was literally going to be a customer, had a lot of parallels, actually, the way that we always described it internally was like the flex port for aerospace machine shops. So just like building a nice software layer, but then also actually getting integrated into the actual like automations of the actual internal operations. That's what a lot of what Flexport does, right? Is they have a nice interface if you're like a you know e-commerce company needs to ship things, but then they also have people on the docks and actually you know operate a lot of software that automates the actual logistics as well. And so that was what was really exciting about Hadrian. Yeah. Chris, why don't you zoom out a bit and walk us through sort of how you navigated the the idea maze for, for, for Hadrian. Uh, how do you think about sort of analyzing industry from first principles and attacking such a complex solution space? Yeah, that's a good question. The answer is, yeah, a lot of boring and very hard things over a long period of time. But the first seed of that came from a software business that I was uh, involved with in Australia, where we were selling software to blue collar companies. And I came to believe then that the right way to bring technologies to the industrial space, which is, you know, more than half the GDP of the world, is to basically be the industrial's business and design it in mind with software from the start. And that's how you really unlock everything. And in terms of root cause analysis of a massive industry like the space and defense supply chain, it's really just like a literal year-long process of thinking about what are the problems the customer have? What are those root causes at each layer of abstraction and tracking it down until you kind of reach the right layer of abstraction to solve it at? Uh, and frankly, that's a lot of like ego death analysis of multiple like logic trails throughout an entire year and talking to tons of people and like holding it all in your head. And it's hard to describe the methodology, but that's effectively what it is. Delian, when, when you came on the podcast, um, why don't you give a brief overview of how the space uh, has evolved uh, since then. Yeah, I mean, I still think there's sort of, you know, three fundamental like groups within the various like space companies. There's basically what I call sort of like satellite operators. So these are people that, you know, uh, send up satellites, whether that's Planet Labs, you know, Sky, um, what's it called, Starlink, uh, you know, Skybox back in the day, et cetera. And they take photos of the earth or they communicate with the earth and they just basically operate basically like almost like data centers up there. Uh, there's a second set that are the people that get them up there, what I call like the like launch operators. Um, so that's everybody from Rocket Lab to SpaceX, et cetera. And then there's what I call like the you know, supply chain, you know, part of it, where there's people introducing, you know, uh, interesting new components that get integrated um, into satellites, people building satellites as a service. Um, across all three of these, you know, over the past year have only, you know, rapidly continued to mature. Um, you know, a ton more, you know, satellite operators have now, you know, stacked and gone out. Uh, a lot of the like, you know, even component supply chains, like, you know, as an example, Momentus technically makes in satellite, you know, uh, propulsion has now gone out in SPAC. And then obviously on the launch side, we've seen a ton of exciting things in particular, obviously Starship being the most exciting since that has the potential to drastically reduce launch costs, which has a ton of implications across the entire supply chain. And so I kind of put Hadrian in sort of that, you know, third bucket of, you know, Hadrian's not sending, you know, satellites up anytime soon and it's not, you know, building rockets, but it is a very core part of that, like, you know, supply chain, but it's slightly different, like, angle on it of like they're not producing like satellite radios but they're producing a wide array of uh different components that go into uh satellites chris i'm curious how you view it you we were talking about how you view more of an opportunity for atoms and bits in terms of uh returns in venture and uh why don't you unpack that a little bit in terms of where you'd be investing if you were fully focused on that yeah i think there's a couple of ways to look at that and one is like you know from a purely investor standpoint you want to be uh, you know, the definition of an entrepreneur is taking a resource that is uh, low valued in one domain and applying it to a domain where it's highly valued. And, you know, I often say like a, a C plus software engineer in an industrials business will, you know, just crush everybody because the bar is so low. 
Um, so one one part of that is you know looking for opportunities where the returns as an investor have been totally squeezed out of SaaS and it's you know it's a rigmarole and it's a kind of rinse repeat model. And secondly, mission wise, frankly, like I don't like the fact that ninety percent of the smart people in Silicon Valley and in our networks are you know optimizing ad click you know, making it go from 1.10% to 1.12% doesn't actually like really help anyone. Uh, it's not very mission driven. It's certainly not going to help us like, you know, breach through to the future. So yeah, that's how I think about it. What's the what's the why now for for space in terms of how, how does sort of the macro economics uh, situation or, or otherwise sort of influence the opportunity to, to build a space company at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that's been coming for a while. Obviously, you can point to like you know, Elon having a significant you know effect on this, but I think at this point, even if like Elon hadn't existed, we sort of would have come to this point around this like same period of time, where access to space just required a certain level of like innovation across a variety of steps of the value chain, and like it's been steadily building on this like exponential curve. If you look at like you know just even the launch cost dropping over time, even pre SpaceX, it was already headed on a very steep sort of you know dropping cost curve. And if you continue to extrapolate that, obviously Elon accelerated it, but we still would have been hitting you know these numbers in a relatively sort of near time frame. And so I think it's been a combination of uh, a variety of the sort of different input levers into what it takes to operate a space business that are just starting to make these things more and more profitable, right? Planet Labs in 2009, 2010, hard to really turn a profit because so many of those input variables were so expensive. Now, ton of free cash flow that gets minted by that business because so much of their input you know, has gotten a lot cheaper. And then that makes investors more interested. So they invest more money into the space industry. So that makes things even cheaper. And it's sort of this recursive cycle that is just feeding on itself more and more and more. Chris, what would you add? I think, yeah, that is definitely true. I think one thing that people undersell is the uh, SpaceX effect on talent. So one thing you need is like this PayPal mafia approach of a bunch of smart people who then go create this Cambrian explosion of other companies. And, you know, most of the people Elon recruited in the early days were like, you know, 21 year olds straight out of college. And now if you look at the design engineers or the founders of most of the other space companies, there's some pedigree from SpaceX. And now there's like this known methodology of building things for space. Uh, and then obviously capital flows through the equation, but the people thing is yeah massively underestimated. Yeah, the thing that's also recently changed is like, you know, two years ago, there was no liquidity in the space market, right? You know, the only acquisition that had ever happened was Skybox by Google back in 2009. Other than that, there'd never been liquidity. Now all of a sudden, SpaceX is effectively a liquid stock. You have all these facts happening. And so that's causing a lot more people to be interested in the equities market. But then also on the debt side, people are actually starting to be able to understand and underwrite these businesses. And it just makes these capital intensive endeavors potentially half or even a third less capital intensive, you know, Hadrian being a perfect example of this, right? Where like a lot of these sort of, you know, equipment and the things that they need to sort of get the business going are things that are very well understood now by debt providers. And there's enough sort of, you know, revenue flowing from all these various aerospace companies. They can underwrite the sort of future potential revenues of, you know, Hadrian and make it to that, like, you know, something like Hadrian maybe would have had to raise, let's say, you know, a hundred million dollars, like, you know, five or six years ago in order to get to some level of like, quote unquote, I don't know, true revenue scale or like profitability versus now you can probably get there with more like 20, 25 and like 75 of debt. Um, and that just wouldn't have been possible five or six years ago. An aerospace company raising $75 million of debt, no fucking way. Like bankers would have been like, that's just, you know, throwing money down the drain. We're super risk averse. We're conservative. Like we could never do something like that. Yeah. And, and so what is sort of your, your request for startups in, in the space? Or if there's a lot of smart people, you know, listening in who are curious to go deeper um, and, and do something in this category, like where would you direct them or like where do you want to see more innovation or experimentation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what I'd say is I'm not super excited by companies that are continuing to go after operating satellites or launching rockets. Those two areas are just extremely like, you know, over indebted in terms of, you know, opportunities, companies that are pursuing it. And like those markets, I think, are like relatively stagnant. I think the areas that I get excited about are like, how can you basically, you know, make the lives of those, you know, pre-existing operators and pre-existing, you know, launch providers a lot easier. So that could be anything from there's some interesting companies popping up around just like, software operating system type tools for, you know, mission operations or being able to, you know, do satellite operations, um, you know, connecting those together, uh, you know, things obviously like Hadrian, you know, enabling the like, you know, supply chain, but there's different parts of the, you know, supply chain as well beyond just the actual like sort of metal manufacturing that could still require, um, you know, a, a, a ton of improvement. So one of my favorite, you know, ideas that I've, you know, hoping to one day be able to fund is like, there still isn't like what I call like the Dell for satellites. Where, you know, right now, the reason that like, you know, for example, Varda has to buy some off the shelf satellite components and that entire system is going to cost us like four to five million. And the only reason it's costing us 45 million is because it roughly costs us like two, two and a half million to launch the thing. And so it feels kind of crazy to like, you can't spend like 50 or hundred K on the hardware and then 2 million to launch it. And then like, if the hardware fails, you're going to look like a fucking idiot. because it's going to be like, dude, like, why did you spend 2 million on launching it? And like, didn't buy good enough hardware versus like, it all of a sudden if launch costs pretty soon are going to look like a hundred K. Well, then you're going to look like a fucking idiot for spending $4 million on a satellite. Because be like, dude, like just send like 10, 100K satellites and it's fine if like eight of them fail. Like, you know, you'll still have two that are up there that are probably more powerful off the shelf components. And so this entire sort of satellite supply chain right now is really set up for this world where like the launch costs were extremely expensive. And now that they're rapidly cratering, I'd be really excited to fund something that basically, you know, the reason I provide Dell as the example is just like mass manufacturing, consumer grade, just like, you know, satellites that you can quote unquote truly buy off the shelf. Like people talk about off the shelf satellite manufacturers, but it's still like, you know, year long lead times. It's basically custom built. Like they're reusing some parts versus I really want something where it's like, you can literally go to like a Best Buy and like, you know, buy a hundred thousand dollar satellite that is just like ready to fucking go. Chris, how, how can we shore in feedback loops as it relates to, uh, to hardware? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think the first thing for people to understand is that like, Imagine how crazy it would be if you could only iterate on a software product like once every eight to 20 weeks. Uh, and yet that is the reality. If you're trying to do anything in like semiconductor or nuclear or flying cars or space or defense, in that design and production phase, you literally can only iterate six to 20, 20 weeks at a time. And basically it's a lead bullets approach of like looking where all that lead time is using software to clamp it down reducing the error rate because any error in manufacturing, you basically have to restart the process again. And then uh, everything in manufacturing is basically series and you want to paralyze it as much as possible. Uh, so, you know, three simple ideas that are brutally complicated at the actual ground floor environment, but yeah, you're doing everything all at once. Yeah, there's a couple of different examples that are starting to, you know, come up in this space that I get excited by. You know, for example, one of the like core manufacturing processes, especially in like plastics mostly, is like injection molding, where you basically create a mold, you inject plastic into it. Right now, those molds are very like manually done. There's some startups that are now working on basically automating that. So you make those cycle times on getting new molds and being able to iterate on plastic parts much more quickly. Metal 3D printing is obviously a huge area that's blown up that allows you to now, you know, print these actual metal parts and like prototype, you know, in-house. Another area in the world of electronics, once you get from like basically, you know, like a, a circuit board to actually wanting to be able to create an actual, um, uh, you know, something that it, it looks like more like a chip that would actually go into your satellite, you need to create what's called like a PCB, a printed circuit board. Right now, those are like, you know, sometimes, you know, four to 12 week long lead times. There's a couple of different groups that are now trying to do the equivalent of like kind of desktop 3D printers, but for printed circuit boards. So now all of a sudden your electrical engineers can also prototype super quickly. And so the problem sometimes with hardware is like, there's a lot of different 
manufacturing processes and a lot of different disciplines. And some of those have gotten very fast cycles, right? If you need to like print a quick plastic part. Yeah, that's actually been you know done pretty damn well. And for the past five years, you can do it. You need to print a circuit board. That good fucking luck. Like it's still 12 weeks. And so I think it's exciting to see startups starting to, you know, chomp off a ton of these different challenges. Yeah, I would also say there's a there's a meta layer of software that is massively lacking. We're building a lot of that at Hadrian for our end, which is basically scheduling algorithms. So the, the process of going, hey, we've just designed a rocket ship with a thousand parts on it. And, you know, there's some assembly Gantt chart, which means that all the engine parts have to be delivered by October for it to be started to assemble in November and then spreading that out to the supply chain so that it's all load balanced doesn't exist. Very hard problem. None of the legacy ERPs that everyone uses like SAP are up to the challenge. And there's definitely like this load balancing software layer like you would find on AWS that is definitely needed as like a meta layer in the industry other than just the raw manufacturing. Yeah. One day we'll get to the point where like, you know, bits are controlling atoms as easily as they currently control bits, right? Like there's so much really exciting automation work that's been done, not only in like people developing software, but people making software that makes software, right? And so people are developing interesting ways to like make atoms. They're still not like the software to automate the making of the atoms quite yet. That's really been like invested into like people don't really automate through metal 3D printers right now, it's still mostly the engineers decide on the CAD file, then they go put it in the metal 3D printer. But you know, as you start to develop these tools, yeah, that meta layer above it is where it starts to get really exciting. And that's that's where the real key for Hadrian comes in is that eventually we want it to be a series of factories across the country abstracted into an API so that a SpaceX engineer can do the whole procurement process as easy as someone as a software engineer just spools up another EC2 instance on AWS like literally supply chain, click the button, machine starts whirring in Texas or California or something. Like that's the level that you need to get this software to, to be able to make the whole machine fly. Like at Varda, you're talking about, you know, 18 person team, I would say almost like six, you know, full-time engineers are basically focused on effectively this like scheduling problem. We're just like, obviously there's some amount of design, what the hell do we build? But then once we design it, okay, how do we make sure that we're like, you know, getting the right things at the right time, that they're at the performance level that you want, et cetera. You know, it's not like manual labor per se. It's obviously they're obviously like very highly skilled engineers, but it's the same thing as like there used to be, you know, back end engineers that would manually like, you know, frag servers and sort of, you know, spin up new ones. And then obviously AWS just started to create load balancing. It turns out there's like a whole set of back end engineering that's actually like quite easily automated via software. There's a whole level of like mechanical engineering that is also actually quite e- easily automated via software. That by the way, most mechanical engineers don't want to fucking do. Like it's, you know, we like hire interns to hopefully do that stuff for us most of the time. But, you know, no like, you know, 10 years out of, you know, SpaceX engineer wants to actually spend their time doing this. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Keith uh, Roy is famous for his framework around, you know, looking for, you know, fragmented industries with, with low NPS and building, you know, full stack solutions for that, you know, open door and, um, you know, or invest it forward is, is another example. Why, why is it so important in low NPS industries to, uh, to build full stack solutions? So I think this goes back to, and I, you know, I don't know Keith's perspective, but for me, it goes back to the root cause solution, like slapping a marketplace in a market where all the actors are bad or it's super low NPS doesn't actually solve any of the underlying problems that cause pain for customers. So you actually have to go down and like vertically integrate everything to provide that simplified full stack solution for the customer that's going to solve their problems. And a low NPS environment is a very easy way to identify that that is the right strategy as opposed to doing a marketplace or a platform. 
Yeah. The reason to do something full stack isn't just for sake of like increasing complexity in your business, right? Like Facebook clearly, you know, became a very, very valuable company doing something quite, quite simple that is not particularly full stack, just like, you know, a little bit of software or social network effects. And turns out, you know, that can make you very defensible. But when you don't have network effects, one of the best ways to sort of create something very defensible is, you know, go into a market where there is all these low NPS players and just outcompete them both on customer experience, but then also in economics. And the sort of best way to do that is, you know, tech enabled players where you can offer both obviously a great experience, but then through technology, you know, leverage your workforce to make it so that you can operate at a different margin structure, you know, than everyone else. And so you don't want to do full stack just for sake of doing it, but in these fragmented markets, there's a reason why it's to provide better NPS and provide better economics. Yeah. And to give, you know, to give everyone listening and you, Eric, the perspective of just how bad it is in, you know, space and defense land you know, unnamed big rocket company uh, makes every single one of their suppliers take photos of the parts they order on the machines, like a cell phone photo, because if they don't do that level of like skeptical analysis of, hey, Bob, are you actually making the part? They get lied to and it shows up eight weeks later. And, you know, slapping a marketplace on that sort of a industry saying, hey, you can find Bob's machine shop slightly more easier now just doesn't cut it. It's not going to, you know, get us to the future. It's not going to actually move everyone, uh, you know, in order to magnitude faster. Totally. I want to shift gears here uh, a little bit. One thing, Chris, that you you were mentioning, you you were talking about how manufacturing is, uh, manufacturing output is a key determinant uh, of a win or loss in, in armed conflict. Why don't you unpack that a bit? Yeah. So if you look back historically, there are very few situations where one side has a a big enough technology advantage that it actually causes a win-loss scenario. You know, most technology stacks are kind of like within 10 or 20% of each other. It's like one type of gun versus another or one type of plane or the other. What it comes down to is, you know, uh, an attrition war and like how fast can you replace the resources that you are spending, which is why in like World War II, you see like oil fields being so, so critical and raw materials so critical because, you know, all the German tanks get wiped out and you need to replace them, right? So what it actually comes down to is like, how much stuff can you build? How quickly? And can you sustain that over a long period of time? And this might change in the future, but at least historically, that, that, is, the, that is like the actual root cause of you know, a win or loss condition. Yeah, nuclear weapons only come out around every, you know, once every hundred years that are actually, you know, step change functions in technology that do actually fundamentally, you know, change the, the, the landscape. That is probably coming relatively soon in the world of space, right? You know, the, the thing that is, you know, often discussed in, you know, defense communities is this concept known as rods from God, i.e. like basically controlled asteroids as weapons. They're more powerful than nukes, but then most importantly, they can travel much faster than nukes because they're coming in from orbit. As you're talking about things that are traveling, you know, Mach 20 plus versus, you know, we've never built any missile that can go that speed. And so anti-missile tech or detection basically can't stop it. And so you're talking about being able to very precisely nuke a city without any sort of countermeasures. And so there is the you know potential for a, you know, let's say a next piece of technology that changes fundamentally the war landscape. But again, those don't come around very often. And so most of the time it just comes down to who can build the most tanks and who can, you know, throw the most soldiers at the problem. Chris, how should we think about this uh, uniquely as it relates to China? Yeah. So the problem with China is that uh, although they don't have as good fighter jets as us, uh, they their manufacturing output is just so much higher than ours that it's ridiculous. So Folks can Google this, but the Japanese F-16 fleet and the pilots are getting worn down because China just scrambles jets into their airspace, forces them to wake up. All the pilots wake up at 2 a.m. and then they land the F-16s every couple of days. And those things can only land a certain number of time. And unfortunately, China can do that. 
with almost no cost to them because they can just produce more planes at a whim. Whereas the Japanese supply chain is actually the American supply chain. And we literally cannot produce that amount of planes just to handle that level of attrition. So the scary thing that people don't realize is that there you, you want to have manufacturing overmatch, you know, in the conflict. And right now we, we absolutely don't. To give you a sense about like how much software can help here, Chris can speak to this example even better than I can. Uh, but there's, I think like an old, like F, is it maybe the F-16 program or like bomber jet that like, they literally like basically lost the, the original supplier for a certain set of parts basically went under. And the US government has put out an RFP for somebody to basically come in, disassemble this particular like engine, find the parts, reverse engineer them, and then figure out how to manufacture them because nobody knows how to fucking make them anymore. It's, it's even worse than that. Like if you look at the defense readiness stats around like how many jets are ready to scramble at any given point in time versus the ones that are sitting on the floor and they can't be flown, you know, it's like 50 or 60%. And if you track it back, it's because, you know, Lockheed Martin sole sourced a part to someone 20 years ago and it's a 15 person machine shop in Iowa or wherever run by a smart, you know, entrepreneur, but that can't produce them in enough volume to keep the fleet alive. And it's just insane that that's the point that we've gotten the supply chain to. To sort of hammer the point home, you've sort of made the point that we should, you know, think about a bubble in the military, similar, you know, with as much sort of vulnerability as uh, we thought about the finance bubble. What when you unpack that that analogy a bit? Yeah, so so I think that bubbles are created when previously competitive entities are no longer tested by the force of reality. And the US military does an incredible job of like wargaming and, you know, making sure that all the, we're as lethal as possible at any given point in time. But the reality is over the last 30 to 40 years, there hasn't really been a great power competitor that has really tested the reality of like, whether in the current dynamic, our military force is as strong we think it is. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'll bet on America every single time. That's why I moved countries to like get this job done. However, I think there is the potential that you can look at US military lethality and readiness as a bubble in the sense that it's been going and going for 30 years without any real tests. And uh, that there is huge similarities between that sort of a bubble monopoly untested dynamic and a financial system, which suddenly pops one day. The problem is you only get to find out when there's a conflict. And by that time to retool everything, it's too late. And there are many, many people in the community that are aware of this. You know, uh, Tony Thomas, who's partner from Lux is well aware of these sorts of problems and working actively on it. And then you've got people like Christian Bros from Andril putting out, who used to work for uh, Senator McCain, is putting out great material on this and really raising awareness. But that is the danger that we think we're lethal and we are really not as lethal as we think we are. So, Chris, we, we've been talking about uh, conflict a, a lot, but uh, of course, you know, sometimes conflict is a way to, or think talking about conflict is a way to talk about how to have peace. Um, so wh- why don't you talk about your, your perspective on uh, on that? Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about like military conflict and conflict in space a lot, but what actually everyone wants is a stable operating environment where entrepreneurs and nonprofits and everyone can act in space and we're not wasting resources doing dumb things like trying to shoot each other's satellites out of the sky. And I think the best types of peace, there's there's two ways you create peace, right? One is like authoritarian peace, which no one wants because it gets nasty very quickly. The best type of peace is two to three major rational actors keeping each other in check. And the danger we face, if we have a weak supply chain and a weak manufacturing output and China outstrips us, is that that will cause conflict because we will either be trying to catch up to them and there'll be some nastiness around the edges or we'll get into a scenario where 
it's like size, you know, sizing someone up at a bar fight. If you think they're an even match, you're more likely to go over and shake the guy's hand and you know try and make nice and not make a big deal out of it. It's when there is a mismatch that people choose to opt into conflict. So having all this output and making sure our defense supply chain is strong and the space supply chain is strong is not about you know being this like overt military power. It's just making sure that as China grows and becomes a global superpower and containment has failed, everyone knows this, it's that we continue to keep pace so that the leading system of engagement in space is, is democratic, rational, fair, is not authoritarian. You know, it's not like algorithm governed, uh, you know, social credit scores. And that requires us to have roughly the same size big stick as the other guy. And there is a danger if we don't fix these problems that we don't. Uh, and that increases the chance of causing conflict. If you look at over the past decade, plenty of people will argue that the number one technology that has saved the most lives is nuclear weapons. If you look at the just like, you know, by decade, you know, deaths per capita, you know, due to warfare massively dropped off after the invention of the nuclear atomic bomb. Now that's held us in, you know, a stable pattern for almost 60 years, but you're starting to see a disruption of that pattern from, you know, uh, the rise of China as an authoritarian power uh, that is, you know, equal, if not, you know, has aspects of, you know, advantages. Uh, you can see this even in their, you know, latest, um, you know, summit, uh, you know, with the Biden administration in Alaska, where, you know, China for the first time stated very clearly, you no longer speak to us from a position of power. Uh, they, you know, no longer see us as, you know, the American superpower. They're convinced that, you know, America's headed into a decades long decline, and that this is sort of their opportunity to effectively, you know, become the world's, you know, single and leading superpower as Europe has no, you know, option. Russia is far, far too far behind. India, you know, as a, you know, large democracy still has never shown a capability of significantly accelerating their GDP. And so it does feel like it's sort of, you know, on, you know, the American uh, economy to, you know, catch up and be able to, you know, stay as that sort of, you know, balancing superpower and obviously sort of defense and aerospace being an incredibly critical component to that. And so I think, you know, both Chris and I would say part of the reason we're excited to work in aerospace and defense and the almost, if not the primary motivation, one of the top motivations for building our companies is because we believe in America being a really great country and being that sort of balance to an authoritarian power like China. That is a... Uh... Good place to good place to wrap. Uh, my, my, my guests today have been uh, Delian and Chris. Um, for people who want to go deeper, Chris, uh, where can people learn more about Hadrian? And then Delian, where can people learn more about Bardo? Uh, they can go to hadrian.co and hopefully apply for some jobs because we need all hands deck. And uh, Varda.com for Varda. Got uh, got a lot of job uh, you know, postings there as well. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Delian. Thanks, Chris. It's been a great episode. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. You can listen to us on the go. episode wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep focus act or be better well there is and if you have 10 minutes headspace can change your life i know because it's definitely helped me too headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research so whatever the situation headspace can really help you feel better If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? 
They can help you with wind-down sessions. They're members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he grew a beard for the first time in his life and has no idea how to manage it, Pat Flynn. This week, we spoke with one of my great friends, John Lee Dumas. He and I have had a really, really long history together. And I'm never going to not say that I was his first podcast interview because he's interviewed thousands of entrepreneurs, of course. So I was the first one. I gave him a shot and you know, he's done awesome and I'm quite proud of him. And it was a great conversation in our podcast episode because he's got a new book coming out, The Common Path to Uncommon Success. And he lays it out for us, a roadmap of how to be successful. And in that conversation, we talked about the definition of success and some of the key highlights to get there. And, and, and that's all really important. I highly recommend you check that out. But I wanna go into something deeper today with you related to success because there is one thing that we all do that could either drive us toward that successful path or completely crush us. And it's the idea of comparison. When you play the comparison game, you're playing a very dangerous game. And, you know, I share this with my kids all the time because they're at the age now. And I remember when I was in school, I mean, I, especially in middle school, that's when I started caring, right? That's when I started caring about what I wore and how others perceived me and how cool I was. And I wasn't cool, but, you know, I tried to be. I remember growing my bangs out and trying to be like a break dancer. That was okay. Anyway, that's when I started to care. And I remember back in the day, always comparing myself to other people, comparing myself to the cool kids, comparing myself to the not cool kids. And there's nothing great that can come out of that. Nothing. And that's what I tell my kids. You either are going to feel bad because you don't have or you're not at where somebody else is, or you're just kind of tooting your own horn playing I'm better than you to somebody else. Or you're exactly the same, right? In, in which case, okay, you've just wasted time. There is no good that can come out of comparison. Now, it's still important to look at what other people are doing and get motivated by that, to pull inspiration. But there's a fine line, right? There is a fine line between inspiration and that competitive nature that many of us have, especially entrepreneurs, that has us go, ooh, why not me? Or how come they get it and I don't? How come even though they started after me, they're doing better than me? Or, ha, look at them. They're trying so hard, but at least I'm more successful. Again, there's nothing great that can come out of that kind of comparison game. 
The comparison game that needs to happen is the one that happens between you and yourself yesterday and yourself last week and yourself last month because that's improvement for yourself. But it's hard because we're human and we compare to others. We have other people help provide us baselines and foundations that we can build off of. And again, it's a very, very blurred line between inspiration, motivation, and ooh, look at them versus me. So how do we delineate that? How do we begin to start understanding how we pull inspiration and motivation from somebody else and not get into that mode where we start either putting ourselves down or putting other people down? And I think it really has to do with, actually I know it has to do with your goals versus their goals, your path versus their path, your history versus their history. And I know I just said, like, let's not compare, but we have to play the comparison game in this way so that we don't compare. Meaning, when we start comparing our situation now to somebody else's situation now, we are putting two things on the same scale that don't deserve to be on the same scale. There are two different histories, two different experiences, two different people, personalities that have led us to where we are today. And so although a person may have started a business after you and is doing two, three, 10, 100 times more business than you, there are so many different variables, so many different circumstances at play that allow for that to happen. And it's to no fault of yours. The failure comes in not noticing that and not realizing that. And in many cases, we can't ever fully understand or uncover the true story unless they share it. You might have heard the idea of the overnight success took 10 years kind of situation where there are 10 years worth of work or just years in general before that inflection point where finally things start to happen. And that's, of course, what gets picked up in the media. That's what gets shared. That's what gets loved and talked about. But what doesn't get spoken about are the nights grinding at home. What doesn't get spoken about is how this person took a chance and met people at a conference that led to another person who then allowed them to be on their platform that then skyrocketed their business. And because they stepped out of their comfort zone that one time, that allowed for all these relationships to happen and their business to boom. We don't see that. We don't know that. And in many cases, those people don't even know it. Sometimes they do because it's very calculated. But in other cases, no. So what do we do? What is the strategy? Well, here's what I do. You're welcome to use this strategy if you'd like, or you can find one of your own. But I think it's really important because I'm not gonna say avoid comparing because you will, you just, you just will. But it's what you do when you start to notice that. So number one, it's beginning to start to be conscious about the idea of going, oh, look at that person, why not me? Or, oh, look at them and versus me, all that kind of stuff. When I start feeling that way, and you, you notice it, you, you know when you're in that mode, right? Number one, just being conscious about it is key, right? Number one. Number two, I always ask myself this question, what benefit is there in making this comparison? And what's really interesting about that question, what's the benefit of making this comparison? I now switch to not, oh, I don't even wanna think about them anymore. I start thinking about, well, what about what they've done can help me? How can I pull inspiration? Not, how am I gonna start 
you know, knocking this person down or knocking myself down. I actually start looking for the lessons. I actually start consciously searching for the things that are going to be of benefit to me from this comparison. That also forces the mind to not think about, well, why them, not me, but what can I learn from them? Or what might I be able to do to serve them so that, this is the other case, if, if you find that maybe you are outperforming them, like not, hey, look at how much better I'm doing, but how can I help that person rise up, right? And so it's interesting because John and I, we are definitely, in a sense, on paper, competitors. We both have podcasts where we interview entrepreneurs. We both have podcasting courses. We both have masterminds. We, we, we both are within the same world and serve, essentially, overlap audiences. But we also understand, and, and I don't know how John thinks about this. I wish I had a chance to ask him. We'll have to bring him on the show again. But I know how I feel. Number one, I feel like we live in this world of abundance where there is more room for all of us, right? And it brings me back to when I told John that I was coming out with a podcasting course. This was after I was an affiliate for his, Podcaster's Paradise. And he said, Pat, I'm so happy that you finally now have a course to serve your audience with. He didn't feel ashamed. He didn't feel worried. He didn't start defending or saying, hey, why are you doing that? You were an affiliate and now you're just trying to you know, undercut me or whatever. No, he saw that I could bring something different and together we could benefit the podcasting space. And we've actually swapped trade secrets together. We've obviously supported each other. I'm supporting him with his new book launch. Again, The Common Path to Uncommon Success. Check it out, Amazon or uncommonsuccessbook.com if you'd like to check it out. Anyway, that's the kind of mindset that you need to have because it's gonna eat you up inside when you see somebody else who's in the same space as you, quote unquote, taking your market share. It's interesting how it's called market share when we don't actually feel like we're sharing it with each other. (laughs) It's honestly something that, yes, I know in many cases, it does actually take market share in the sense of the word. But again, abundance. There are people who will wanna learn just from you. There are people who are only going to want to listen to your podcast. There are people who will listen to both and appreciate you both. And we know that you exist because we've met you in person and we couldn't be more thankful, John and I. John is an amazing person. He is somebody who is definitely a character, but he hustles and he gets work done and he's definitely inspired me. Now let's talk about in addition to comparing yourself to others and how to pull inspiration from that again, what is the benefit of this comparison? What can I or might I learn from this other person? Beyond that, it's that comparison of you versus you. You know, I like to think about going back into the DeLorean and going back to my past to tell myself certain things that I wish I knew back then, right? That's a very common question on a podcast if I'm a guest. Pat, if you, like people often know I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. Pat, if you had access to the DeLorean right now and you can go back 20 years to when you were 18 years old, because I'm 38 right now, quick math, uh, what would you tell yourself? You know, and I always say the same things. Number one, try to meet and befriend and serve as many people as possible because you never know exactly who that person might become and how they might be able to serve you later in life. Number two, don't worry about what other people think about you because that ate me up. That ate me up all throughout high school and in the first year of college. After that, I finally started to get comfortable 
And number three, start your email list. <laughs> start your email list sooner, Pat. You, you please. And your podcast and, and all that stuff. Anyway, if you want to start an email list soon, smartpassiveincome.com slash convertkit is what I would recommend. I'm an advisor and an affiliate for that company. But thinking about you versus you, you need to think about going into the future and thinking about if you were to continue on the path that you're on right now and you take that third-person view of yourself, how would you feel? How would you react to where you think things might be headed. If you were to continue on the same path, if you were to continue to do the same habits, if you were to continue to say no to those things that you know to say yes to and to say yes to those things that you know to say no to, how would you feel looking at yourself then? Right, it's almost like when Marty and Jennifer travel to the future, 2015 with flying cars and all that stuff. And they see versions of themselves and they're not quite happy with how they turned out. I would imagine that in many cases that that would be us. And I play this game with myself all the time. And yeah, myself included. And so when I think about this experiment, this thought experiment, and I think about the behaviors that I'm doing, the habits that I'm forming, I think about myself in the future if I were to not change certain things. And I don't just think about me looking at me. I also, and I've shared this before in the past, I haven't shared this in a while, so this might be new for you, but I have two kids, right? My son is 11, my daughter is eight. I think about them 20 years from now, right? 20 years from now, my son is 31 and my daughter's 28. And they each have their own families and careers and they are good friends, so they meet up at a cafe without us. My wife, April, and I are just chilling in Hawaii. I own a coffee farm and... My wife is breeding dogs. This is just, again, we, we like thought experiments. And we're in, we're in Hawaii, by the way, because that's where the coffee belt is. Anyway, and the kids are there in this cafe, and they're chatting. They're chatting about their childhood, as, as we all do when we reflect on our past, when we introspect. They're chatting about us, me and April. And what are they saying? Are they saying good things? Are they saying bad things? Are they proud of us? Are they worried about us? Are they talking about how things should have gone instead? And without even knowing the answers or exactly what scenarios they're talking about, but just those questions alone help me think about the actions that I'm taking today. So whether you have kids or not, it doesn't matter. Important people in your life are gonna be inspired by you in one way or another or not. And that's something that drives me big time because my kids are, are, are the most important things to me in this world. And thinking about how they take these experiences as children with them into adulthood with relation to how April and I parent is definitely something that inspires me to make sure I make the right decisions to be the example that I want them to talk about in a positive manner down the road and you know, I invite you to think about those thought experiments too. So thank you for going deep with me today in talking about not just comparisons between ourselves and others, our quote unquote competition. You can be complementary to others that on paper, perhaps all your competition. And I love that thought because now we can each combine our superpowers and together we are Captain Planet. You know what I'm saying? 80s kids out there, you know, you know what I mean, Captain Planet. Heart. <laughs> And this comparison of you and you, 
right? I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for following me on Friday. Every Friday, you get me and just me. And we talk about typically a topic that relates to the previous episode, the interview with a special guest that has come on on Wednesday. So there's a few of these Follow Fridays that have come about and I invite you to check out the rest of them because I feel like it's just you and me chatting and and I love that, especially as I'm recording this while still in the pandemic, right? We're seemingly closing in on the end of that, which is, I'm very grateful for, but it gets lonely. But these conversations, even though you're not with me in person here, you kind of are, you actually are. So thank you so much for listening. Just know that I appreciate you. I know you're there and I love you. Thank you. Cheers, take care. Thank you so much. And I look forward to serving you in the next episodes next week. Thanks for joining me on Smart Passive Income. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Sound design and editing by Paul Gregoris. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories. And I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Show once again. Joining NASA and myself is Michael Atherton and we have Adam Collins. Now, for those that don't know, Adam is a broadcaster, podcaster, written journalist, and he's also doing a lot of commentary on the live streams, generally the Middlesex games at Lords. Is that right, Adam? Have I got that spot on or not? I think you've captured just about everything, Casey. And yeah, it's been a great time to be involved uh, with County Cricket. Uh, there's one uh, stat that's doing the rounds at the moment that nearly 2 million people have engaged with county cricket on the live streams over the course of the first three rounds, which really shows with uh, um, the access that people have got to county cricket and this incredible block of games before the international summer starts that people are engaging, enjoying it. It's a great time to be on. It is, Ath, isn't it? You've, you and I both commentated on the Bob Willis final last year. And it's amazing, really, now, because you can pretty much see every single game of county cricket as long as you've got Wi-Fi access or a computer, a phone or anything like that. Yeah, every county is streaming. 
and the ECB this year have got all those streams onto their central app. Um, so you can just go on the ECB app and, and look at all the streams in, in one place. Um, and it's fantastic. I mean, a number of factors are helping it kick in as well. Adam mentioned this long stretch of championship games before the international start. Um, they're all starting on the same day on a Thursday, so a regular slot. So I think that combination of a regular slot, uh, lots of championship cricket when there's a captive audience... Um, and good championship matches as well means that lots of people are watching. And that's always been the issue uh, for county cricket. I mean, the old story at the start of the season where you see the pictures in the papers of, you know, not very many people watching. I think everybody recognises that there is an audience for county cricket, but it's often a remote audience. And therefore, the streams kind of bridge that gap. They allow people who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to get to games because, I mean, at the moment, nobody can get to games anyway. But generally, you know, four-day cricket uh, often during the week is difficult for the work, working man and woman to get to the game. So the streams offer a bridge. Uh, but as with lots of things, it's, it's how you kind of, how you monetize that, how you organize it, how you develop it, uh, that is the key to whether it'll be a success in future. It's been all right for you, Nass, as well. Not so good for me this year following Ken. But you get to see a lot of these players, don't you? Essex has obviously done very, very well. But when there's a young player that the papers start writing about, in the old days, you wouldn't have necessarily seen them play. But actually now, you you can see any of these players and make a view on if they're any good or not. Absolutely. Um, whether they are future England cricketers or just people you want to keep an eye on, or even just as a county fan, I know you've been following Kent who haven't had the greatest start to the season, but I was glued in. I was one of those two million hits that was following the Warwickshire-Essex game at Edgebaston, which was going down to the wire. I think that's the key as well. It's not just having these streams, but three of those games were going to the last hour, the last half hour. They were real nervy affairs. And that's a good sign, what Athens is talking about there, about the pitches, that with the sun out, we've had very little rain, if any rain, up until this round of fixtures that started yesterday. But if the games are going to the last hour, the last half hour, that means the groundsmen are getting getting it right as well. So it's not just having any old cricket out there. It's having quality cricket and the sort of cricket that will produce international cricketers down the line. You're spot on. It's giving us a good sign of future England cricketers. I don't know why you had to say Kent like that then. But anyway, uh, right, let's have a look. At Group One, at what's going on? So we're going to look at the last round, up to the last round of games. There's obviously games going on today, but this isn't included in that. Warwickshire off to a flying start, beat Essex last week. That's been excellent from them. But although they're right down the bottom, Ath, let's come to you. There was a welcome return to form for young Hasib Hamid. Uh, good to see. Absolutely. There have been one or two, lots of good stories and comebacks uh, those three rounds of county games, Simon Kerrigan is another, but great to see Asib Hamid find some form again. I think the move has been a good thing for him just to get away uh, from a, a place where he was struggling for a while, get away from family, start again, start afresh with a new set of players, a different set of eyes from a coach in wars, and just try and reset his career. Um, I think he got to a stage at Lancashire where his form had been so poor for so long, 
He'd made so many changes to his game, tinkering around. If you, I followed Hamid a lot, obviously, because I'm a, a former Lancashire opener, and therefore you feel a, an affinity or an affection for, for somebody who's coming after you. And I followed his game a lot, and I watched him, and he's making so many changes to his game. I think he almost lost a sense of what, what previously had felt natural and instinctive to him. Um, so I think the change is a good thing. Um, and hopefully we'll see him go from strength to strength. And I, I've always felt that if you play as well as he played in uh, on that India tour a few years ago as an 18-year-old, it's there, it's in you, and it will come back eventually, given the time and, and given the right circumstances. So fingers crossed for him. The only thing, I, one slight thing I might point out is that the, the Knott's feed tagging him as the... Bradman Bolton, Bolton Bradman. It's just not a helpful thing, I think. When, when you know, when previously it was the baby boycott, now it's the Bolton Bradman. It's just not helpful. Just let him get on with his game, score his runs. Uh, fingers crossed he can come again. It's, I know exactly what you mean there because actually I keep watching Kent and they're having a shocker at the moment. They've lost, what, two out of their three games. And every time they're sort of, they got bowled out for 138 and the Kent Twitter feed keeps putting the hashtag Super Kent. You know, Joe Denley, LBW, hashtag Super Kent. It's like, seriously, just drop the Super Kent while we're bottom of the division or the group or whatever it is at the moment. It is not helping things. But the thing is, Nass, as well, when you look at his stats, it's extraordinary, really, just how good he was before he got picked for England. You can see there he averaged 48. Then it goes right down to 23. I think in 2018 he averaged 9.7. So I know that talks about the tinkering stuff like that, but would you say that on sort of county pitches over the last few years that have been nibbling around a bit, his game actually might be more suited to international cricket on better pitches than it would maybe these county pitches that are nibbling around a bit more. Is that fair or not? I think I think it is fair. You throw in the injuries as well, and you came to me about someone who's got poppadon fingers, and he's got very similar poppadon fingers. <laughs> he kept snapping his fingers and having serious injuries, which always sets you back. Those stats you showed there looked like stats of someone who'd got into international cricket and found it a little bit too demanding and task, you know, too much of a task, and then faded away. When Ath's point is exactly right, he actually found it um, not relatively easy. He just played like an international player. The one thing I'd note, Rob, after that India tour, we stayed around um, after that for the one days, and um, Hamid stayed around with his dad. And I noted on that tour, he went and saw a lot of like the Indian greats. He was sat with. Kohli and yeah. Dhoni, and a lot of the Jadeja around the gym in Chennai. And I just looked at him and I thought, just be careful here. You've had a good tour. Enjoy your success. Don't try and make it too important. And I'm speaking from experience here myself. Batting and cricket, you can make a little bit too important. Yeah, do your research, do your prep, but also enjoy the journey. And that's what he said. He's moved to Knott's and playing under Peter Moores and having a a new environment, he's actually learning to enjoy the journey and not make it too important, whereas in the back of your mind, you know it's important, you know it's something you want to be successful at. Uh, let's move on to Durham. They've been very brave, actually. They've made an excellent signing in David Beddingham, Collo, where 
he played beautifully in the last game against Derbyshire for 257. I watched a lot of this, and he has an excellent technique, very classical batsman. Tell everyone a little bit about him. Yeah, he caused quite a stir. He's a 27-year-old, so he's been around the traps in South Africa before leaving a couple of years ago. He was in the last batch of Colpac registered players last year, so a big call to jump onto what was essentially a sinking ship, but Durham saw enough there to give him a professional contract as an overseas. And look, the data so far this year, he's made over 500 runs, I think 565 runs in three rounds. It's been since 1988 since the player has made a thousand runs by the end of May, which has been well documented over the last couple of weeks. And given we have so much championship cricket between now and the end of May, it gives that opportunity again. Uh, um, so look, he's an overseas player. He isn't eligible for a UK passport. So he falls into that same category of someone like Simon Harmer, who will need to play here as an overseas. But um, given there's no more Colpac registrations, I suppose the door might be ajar for him to play for South Africa if he can uh, bash the door down. But yeah, a really interesting story with that uh, Colpac registration and the changes this year uh, intersecting. So am I right then in, in that, that none of these players that are over, remember like Simon Harmer a couple of years ago, well, is he going to play for England? You know, players have come over in the past and it's about, will they qualify for England? That door is now shut. They cannot do that. Is that right? Well, truth be told, it was shut anyway. It was the misinformation around Simon Harmer which got the, the ball rolling on this particular story. In order to qualify for England in the way that Jofra Archer did, the first step is being eligible for a UK passport. So one needs to follow the other. If you don't have a passport, you need to qualify via residency, and that takes up to five years. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated puzzle, but the key piece of information here is that Durham have backed betting him in and he's delivering for them. And it means that uh, there is another route through to international cricket for him if he's good enough. Ath, is it a good thing? Because I, I would say the best standard of county cricket in my time was pretty much when the cold packs were in, when the two overseas players were allowed in county cricket. So you're looking at the mid 2000s and out of that became that great England side. So is it a good thing that cold packs no longer can come and play? And if they do, they have to be overseas or not? It's a good question. I've always felt that there's a balance to be struck. My own view is that if county clubs are not about producing their own players in the main, then I can't quite see the point. You know, that you plough in £100,000 a year on academies, you pump in lots of time and resources to your pathways and your age group cricketers, the main thing has to be surely about producing the vast majority of your own players. Now, on top of that, ideally what you'd like to see is high-quality overseas players. You'd like to see your England players, if you have them playing some county cricket as well. Um, but what's happened in the last few years in county cricket, for all kinds of reasons, all the changes in, in the world game, is the quality of overseas players is not what it was because of that lack of availability and the fact that there's so much international and franchise cricket happening in the world. And England players rarely play county cricket either. I know they're playing at the moment because there's a long run-up to the, to the international games. But generally, you've not seen England players play that much county cricket over the last few years. So in a way, the Colpac players have, have filled, filled in a bit of a gap. But I do believe that the main focus of counties has to be producing the vast majority of players from within their own kind of area, not necessarily a strict border, 
if you like, because lots of counties will have their minor counties or the national counties on their borders. So Lancashire will pick from Cheshire and Cumbria and all these places, and Middlesex will go to Berkshire. Um, but surely counties have to look at producing their own players as, as, a, as a prime motivation. Right. Nas, there was a loss, the first loss in 22 games for your boys, Essex. It's been an excellent run, but it was Rob Yates, a lovely-looking left-hander. I mean, in his batting, that nothing else. But uh, Luke's a fine player, and it was a great knock, Nass. It was a great knock. They chased down, what, 257, and Harmer went wicketless. And the way he played Harmer in particular, we showed last week some of Harmer's wickets again, too. Is it Durham and the left-handers? He's just been all over left-handers, um, but this left-hander played brilliantly. He's a university boy, uni uh, Birmingham University. I think he's doing English. I think he's just done an essay on gorillas and how gorillas uh, bang their chests, whether in captivity. My research on this lad is just so <laughs> deep, it's untrue. I'm researching someone who put an end to Essex's run. Uh, but he played brilliantly. And Ath wrote a good piece, didn't you, Ath, about university cricket and late developers and here is sign of someone um, that you do need to stick with university cricket and make sure that people find a different way away from academies of bursting on the scene. Yeah, the, the problem, if it is a problem, is, is that you can't stay on the academy after a school age. So once you've left school, you, you leave the academy. So counties are making decisions on 18-year-olds. Now, some players are ready for a professional career at 18 or 19 but not everybody is not everybody has a linear progression and not everybody is ready at such a young age so you have to have a kind of you have to have ways into the game for the 22 year olds and 23 year olds and university the university scheme has been good for a lot of players i think there were 29 in the last round of championship games that have come through the MCCU scheme, the MCC no longer fund that scheme, but as it was, 29 have come through that. And lots of players still need that time to wonder whether, you know, professional cricket is for them and, and, and mix and match a bit, study and, and play cricket at the same time. So I do hope that the ECB or somebody finds a way of continuing to fund this scheme um, because, as I say, not everybody is ready for a pro career at 17 or 18. And you don't want to shut the door at the late developers. There are plenty of them out there. We could pluck any number of examples. There are lots of people who start to flourish at 24, 25. Right, so you said earlier about England bowlers or England players playing in county cricket. It's good to see one back for Durham, and that's been Mark Wood. Um as mad as he is, though, this was him last year in lockdown. <laughs> the hi-ya, that's all I know what to say. Hi-ya! Gladiators, the travel leader. The Arnie, get to the chopper. I mean, God knows what his wife must be thinking, having to film that all the time. But anyway, it's good to see him back, Nass. 
I can't believe that link you've done from one to the other there. If you're going to put that out, you put that out yesterday morning saying, great to be back a year ago. This is what I was doing. If you're going to put that tweet out, you better bowl well that day. And he bowled beautifully. They had actually um, Warwickshire 30 for eight. I think uh, Ben Rain had got five for nine. He got three for uh, Warwickshire actually recovered. Uh, anyone who we've done on this show actually had a bad day yesterday. Yates got one, Hamid got a duck, but it is always good. On and off the field, Mark Wood is quality. Mark Wood is box office on and off that cricket field. Yeah, good to see him back. Right, let's go to group two then and see what's been going on in that. Who are the runners and riders? Hampshire right at the top, albeit they're having a shocker at the moment against Surrey. They got skittled for a cheap score yesterday. Gloucestershire, Somerset, Middlesex, Surrey and Leicestershire down the bottom. Uh, Somerset though, Colo, that well, they've been going pretty well. Craig Overton, what do you make of him? How do you see him this year? You've seen him live. I have. He's back in business. I mean, a big game uh, last week to get them back on the winners list. But I think it's just like the overall presence uh, we have with him now. As you mentioned it earlier with the Bob Willis Trophy final last year, he took a brilliant catch at second slip on the third day of that Middlesex game, which completely turned it around and was the catalyst for an eight-wicket session for Somerset. And they ended up hauling down 285 uh, on the final day at Lord's. So, yeah, he was the PCA Player of the Year last year with 30 wickets in the Bob Willis Trophy, made runs as well. He was made captain of Somerset uh, during the preseason this year when Tom Abel was um, sitting out with, with COVID-19 after returning from the PSL. So I know that Ed Smith wanted him to find an extra yard when he was chief selector. Um, whether he has or hasn't, hard to measure watching county cricket. But um, he did go on that Ashes trip four years ago and make his test debut. And I suppose at this stage of the, of the season, he's well-placed to get in, in that touring party uh, later in the year to Australia again. Colin, I don't know how much you've seen of um, Ollie Robinson down at Sussex, but where would you say those two, who's, who would you say is the better bowler from what you've seen? Are they completely different types of bowlers? They look similar. You'd say maybe Overton slightly quicker? I think they are doing a marginally different role. I mean, Robinson uh, would be a yard slower, but he, he lands it on a, in a shoebox all day long from six foot seven. Whereas Overton, I think it's that shape he's getting. Even that last ball he bowled before lunch yesterday uh, to pick up Max Holden down at Taunton hits the length and, and jags away off the seam and can shape it naturally away from the right-hander. So whilst he, he looks like a big brute of a man and uh, slamming it in short of a length and trying to hurry up the batsman, hit the splice, hit the gloves, he's actually got this quite nice natural shape. So whereas with Robinson, I think it's more about um, hitting the same spot uh, and just working players over, and dare I say it, uh, in the mould of Glenn McGrath. Who would you say, Colo? I mean, because when you look at England, one of the problem areas is the number eight. Now, I know it's not about the better batter and all of that and who can do it, but which one of those two, because they're both in that similar role, which one yeah. of those two would be the better number eight for England, would you say? Yeah, interesting that Overton's actually promoted himself, in essence, to number seven this year ahead of Lewis Gregory. So they're batting Stephen Davies at six, which gives them that, that sort of strength and lower middle order. Um, so, look, it feels to me that Overton is a better option with the bat. Um, he's obviously had that experience with England before at test level in a couple of different Ashes series and made runs in the Bob Willis final last year, which was a, a quasi-test match, I suppose, in the way that it was covered, a five-day game at Lords, a half-century in the first innings and 40-odd in the second. So he's given himself every opportunity to, to bolster the case that if given an opportunity at number eight, he can complement that bowling and Look, I don't think he'll be uh, in the first team picked uh, for Australia. There's a pretty long queue there with Anderson, Broad, 
Wood, Archer, Wokes, the list goes on. But I expect he'll be on the plane. Right, there was a good win. Ath for Middlesex in the London Derby, which you went to. Um, and another comeback. It's been it was the week of comebacks last week for Toby Rowland Jones, another similar bowler actually, to probably Overton and Robinson as well. Yeah, he's had a real tough time with injuries. He missed the whole of, of 2020. He's had some terrible problems with stress fractures. So very good to see him back. He's he's good bloke. Those uh, people that you know, everybody wishes well. Um, and his career was derailed, really, just as it was blossoming. Whether he'll get back to the highest level, I don't know. Um, but it was very good to see him back. The standard of bowling, actually, in that game was very good on, on both sides. You had uh, Jordan Clark, Ricky Clark, Reese Topley for Surrey. You had Roland Jones, Bamba, Murta for Middlesex. So the standard of seam bowling... Uh, was excellent. I think the standard of batting on both sides was a bit iffy. Um, certainly Surrey getting rolled out twice and Roland Jones played his part in that, not least getting Hashim Amla for a, a four-ball <laughs> pair. He got him out first ball in the second innings. He's got an unbelievable record against Hashim Amla, so they whistled him on as soon as Amla came to the crease and it just lasted one ball. Yeah, well, that is Group 1 done. Uh and group two, actually. Sorry, I'm losing track here. But anyway, <laughs> hasn't taken long, just one part. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll do group three. There we are. So, group three, Lancashire right at the top. Lancashire, Yorkshire, Sussex going well, Northants, Glamorgan and Super Kent uh, <laughs> are down the bottom. And they're also struggling at the moment against... Glamorgan, but we said it was the week of comebacks last week. Another comeback of sorts from Don Best Nass. Uh, good to see he seems to be in a better place than he was after India. Yeah, he did. I mean, he had a really difficult winter, an up and down winter. I mean, he got wickets in Sri Lanka and then he got left out after that first test match in India. Must have been a really difficult time for him. Um, and to come back and bowl so well. He bowled beautifully in this game. It wasn't the sort of wickets we saw in Sri Lanka with long hops and full tosses. And again, all credit to the groundsman, really, to produce pitches that spin is playing a huge role already this summer. And we had Tuffers on a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, on the cricket show? And he just dissed all this stuff about you can't take wickets in April as a spinner. If you get the right pitches, the right weather, spinners can produce the goods. But I think just for Don Bess and after what happened in the winter, both mentally, and I know he's been in some very, did a very good interview the other day about where he's been mentally. I think he needed this start to the season. He's also got some useful runs. We're talking about, that's why we're talking about that number eight position, because that's the role he plays for England. So it's very important for him. I think for a little while, just to concentrate on county cricket and bowling ball after ball and getting control of length. That's what he's lacked as an international cricketer. For a finger spinner, he hasn't controlled length enough, and that's what he's got to do going forward. Colin, have you noticed in all the games that you've done, there has been over the last few years a real lack of spin just being bold, not even factoring in games of cricket, and it's always, always been about the seamers, even at Lords or not? 
yeah, well played, Joe Root, uh, messaging through the off-season that he wanted to see the, the points for a draw increased up to eight, which means that there is an emphasis on making sure that pitches last four days and making sure that you have a frontline spinner in the attack. And just building on Nasser's point about length with best, I think presence is the other word. In India, that fell away certainly in that fourth test match. And seeing the way that Bess was able to bowl uh, in the fourth innings last week, I think it was the third innings actually in a in the uh, in the uh, on the Saturday and Sunday, picking up the first five wickets, it really showed that he was on top. Uh, and yeah, that interview that he did during the week, uh, which continues to reinforce that he has um, got challenges above the shoulders, which are well documented. And the fact that he has an approach to deal with that, uh, it means that he can still succeed at the top level. And I think the best thing for Bess is that he's going to get to play all season with Yorkshire. Um, he was never a sure thing of playing down at Taunton or even as the second spinner, uh, how often you see a second spinner in the county championship uh, when he had Jack Leach by his side. But now at Yorkshire, he can be sure that without really having to worry too much about international cricket this year, unlikely he'll be part of the setup on that in the short term. He can just focus on getting his overs in and building his presence. Uh, speaking of spin and getting overs in, I think, I'm trying to work out here, I think you've got 62 overs in the Lancashire versus Kent game at Canterbury. Uh, Matt Parkinson, I ended up with seven for 126. That's exactly what you want. It's not about turning pitches. It's about pitches where they just bowl over after over, especially on the last day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know why the pitches have been better at the start of the season because a number of factors have, have coincided. We've had decent dry weather. Uh, the conference system, I suspect, is playing a bit of a role when you take out the threat of relegation. Uh, people are not so much rolling the dice with home pitches. Uh, and maybe those extra points for the draw. I'm not a fan of eight points for the draw, I have to say. I don't think we should be encouraging... Uh, negative cricket or, or extra points for not winning games. Uh, but all those factors maybe have combined uh, to bring in better pitches and that's allowed for more spin, which is an entirely good thing. You want a balance uh, across these four days, a balance between bat and ball and a balance between seam and spin. And good to see Matt Parkinson bowl well, all those overs, uh, plenty of wickets, uh, full of confidence. I mean, the winter he had travelling around in Sri Lanka and India with just a bib on for about 80 days running, you know, drinks and clubs and, and God knows what else. It's actually nice to get a ball in his hand in the middle uh, and produce the goods. Uh, there was an extraordinary run chase. North Hans versus Glamord, well, Glamorgan. Ricardo Vasconcelos, what a great name that is. Got a brilliant 185. Uh, tell us a little bit about him, Colo. Yeah, quite a uh, quite a uh, satisfying name to say, Ricardo Vasconcelos. Uh, 185 not out, his second century of the season. He's now made seven tons in 41 games to start his first-class career. Interesting backstory again, uh, coming from abroad, South African background, but has the Portuguese passport, so he's here as an, a non-qualified. Doesn't have to be an overseas player. And and Northampton really backed him a couple of seasons ago, giving him a five-year deal, uh, which means he'll be there for a long period of time in their rebuild and their climb up the the ranks over the years. They had a really good season in 2019. And he was made captain yesterday. So Adam Rossington hurt his finger last week and, and they gave the armband to Vasconcelos, which I suppose says a fair bit about uh, where they see him uh, developing right now. Um, and two centuries to start his, uh, start his year, 154 at Kent and 185 last week in that monster chase of 355. <laughs> He's very well placed to make an impression over the years to come. 
Yeah, now, so I'm looking, take, take, as a captain in these things, so Cook, the captain of Glamorgan, Glamorgan got 407. It was obviously a pretty flat pitch, good for batting. Northant's 364. And then to stop it from going for a boring draw and actually just going for the win, 311 for five, Glamorgan got in the third innings, which set them, as Carlos said, 355. Should you be criticised as a captain for doing that, or should you bat aside out the game and not risk losing to try and win? No, I completely agree with that point, really. You've got to incentivise winning. That's what you turn up four days. You want to win that game. You don't want to walk off with a draw. I mean, they chased that down in 73 overs, so it wasn't like an easy declaration. They went at five and over throughout that. There is a cut-off point as a captain, and we've played three-day cricket. We've played games where it's rained. And you get to that last day and it's say you've only got 40 overs left and you're setting the opposition 200. There's only going to be one winner because either they're going to get it or they're going to shut up shop. And in 40 overs, you're not going to get 10 wickets. So there is a cutoff point as a captain where you say, well, if I set on this, we're not going to win it. But they could. Um, but in 73 overs, I thought that was a very fair run chase. I thought the Glamorgan captain and the Glamorgan backroom staff, Matthew Maynard, did exactly the right thing. And fair play to him and I think Rob Keogh got 100 as well. Fair play for them for batting so well. You walk away that day, go, they did well. At least we gave ourselves a chance to win. Not that it was like this, Ath, where you're chucking up runs and you're setting a declaration that way. You're contriving a game almost. Are you a fan of that? So when we get towards the end of the year or the end of this season... Because there's no relegation, you might have teams actually setting up games. Do you like that or not? I think that the best thing is when a game reaches its natural conclusion because essentially four-day cricket is about trying to, you know, prepare players uh, for, for five-day international cricket test match cricket. But it's also about... Um, showcasing the best of county cricket and often those kind of run chases that we will remember from our day uh, were fantastic games to be involved in. Uh, But you have to remember that we started with three-day cricket as well when sometimes you you couldn't finish a game without some contrivance. So it's much better in four-day cricket where you don't need that level of contrivance. But sometimes you might if, if if rain is a factor or weather's a factor. Um... And I, I, I'm not against that. I, I think the art of a declaration uh, is is part of the captain's art, trying to work out uh, what you need to set a team, how many overs you need to, to try and win a game. But ideally, you want groundsmen to prepare pitches that will kind of encourage a four-day game that will start to deteriorate toward the back end of the game and will allow a game to come to its natural conclusion. And if you've got the right tools in your side, a balanced attack, that you've got seamers that can take wickets the first half of the game and then spinners that can take wickets in the second half of the game, really that's the ideal scenario for a a four-day first-class game. Uh, In other news, then we saw the world's number three test batsman, Marnus Labashain, playing for Glamorgan. He's just got over here, but... He was done by Super Kent, 58-year-old Darren <laughs> Stevens, LBW. Uh, but it's good to see him over here now. It is. He is a, he is a world-class player. Uh, I know we're going to come on to Australia. have given three batsmen contracts for the year ahead. He is one of those three with Warner and Smith. He has all his idiosyncrasies. I think he's becoming more Steve Smith-like 
with every innings, the leave and the shuffle away and going back and across, which was his undoing there, uh, the nip backer from Darren Stevens. I also think he's a very good overseas pro. I think he's an absolute cricket badger. I think Math Maynard tweeted the other day, picked him up from the airport. He's not shut up for three hours on the journey back to Cardiff or wherever they were going. And you imagine being in a dressing room with Marnus, who loves, lives, breathes cricket. They will just chat cricket all the time. So I think a perfect overseas pro, not someone who will just come for the cash. Every innings for Marnus Labuschagne is important, is vital. Well, you, you, you talk about him like that, he sounds a little bit annoying anyway. You hope he would be batting out there rather than being in the dressing room. Well, he's it's Australian, like, isn't he? So there you go. Matt's <laughs> made an interesting point there. Can we have a look, Colo, at the Australian central contracts given out this year? And there aren't many batsmen in that, actually, are there? No, and that's by design. Uh, it, that is by design. They, they don't want to... Uh, they want to create a climate where you're incentivized to make runs and get a contract, this incremental contract scheme they've got. So 17 were given out. That's the minimum number they can give up to 20. But it does mean the focus was those who weren't there. So Travis Head, the curse of the Australian vice-captain, continues. He's been dumped altogether. Matthew Wade, likewise. Joe Burns, who was playing test cricket last summer, is not there either. And Smith Warner, Labuschagne, the three who are. Uh, and it means that there's a big emphasis on the, the T20 World Cup later in the year, players like Agar, Maxwell, Richardson, Zampa, who will all be part of that T20 squad. So an interesting balance and complexion given that Test cricket remains the priority, according to the selectors, but they've never won the T20 World Cup before. So uh, that's a competing priority in this particular calendar year. I mean, Colin, I always find it amazing, really, because when I started, what, in the late 90s, you'd get any Australian batsman over. You think about them, Jimmy Marr, Martin Love, Darren Lehman, Mike Hussey before he played, Matt Hayden. All of these guys would come over. And Jamie Cox, I think of another one, you just keep on coming, Divinito. They would come over and they would burn up county cricket. They were averaging 50-plus in shield cricket back in Australia. Why is that not happening anymore? Why have they not got those batsmen coming through? Yeah, and to a man, they all say that was what made them as cricketers. And Marnus Labuschagne, likewise, he made four centuries for Glamorgan at the start of 2019 when he wasn't really on the radar for Ashes selection. And he's, well, he's averaged 68 in Test cricket over the last two years, a remarkable rise and rise and making cricket all the better yesterday with a 45-year-old picking him up uh, within half an hour of walking <laughs> to the crease. That's a beautiful game sometimes. But no, you're right that that extraordinary depth that was there through the shield in the 90s, I think that, that I mean, without sort of... Uh, uh, laboring uh, the point too much on what happened in the Sheffield Shield this year necessarily, but there were some good signs. There were some higher scoring seasons than we have seen in the last handful of years or so. Um, but yes, it, it's nowhere near the depth that you're referring to there from the 90s, where literally the second Australian team, Australia A, uh, would often be far more competitive than the touring sides that came out. Yeah, Colin, I mean, I, re I read an article that you wrote, well, you wrote it a while ago, but I read it yesterday, talking about when Australia picked a second team who played in the, well, played in what, a tri-series effectively, wasn't it? And they ended up getting to the final against Australia, where the Australian team got booed. Is that the reason why it never happened again, I suppose? Yep, almost bang on the money there. Ath would remember that well. They, they had a quadrangular series uh, with Australia, Australia A, England and Zimbabwe. They were a bit worried about Zimbabwe not being strong enough. So they brought Australia A in and they overtook England in the group stage and, and made it to the final. And I'll tell you what, they nearly knocked off the, the senior Australian team 
in that first final, a stunning one day at the SCG. So um, there's a lot of nostalgia around that summer of 94, 95 and what a wonderful time it was watching the next generation come through. Players like Blewett, Hayden, Ponsing, Martin, Bevan, Langer, Lehman. And that was the nucleus of the Australia A team in 94, 95. And you press fast forward eight years to the Ashes cycle of um, 2002, 2003. And that was pretty much the Australian top six. So it was a wonderful breeding ground and a lot of people would love to see them bring it back. Kind of someone who was getting runs and did get runs in Australia was Cameron Green. I think he was the leading run scorer, average 75 in Shield cricket. How good a cricketer is he? Should England be wary of him next winter? Exceptional and yes. Uh, he bats for <laughs> long periods of time. He, he's the kind of guy who you can set and forget for a day. Uh, and you've got to have a certain temperament to do that. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, the, the strength, the stability, the character, and he's got all of that. It's like he's been made in a, in a test tube. He looks like the perfect uh, cricketer from age 22 or whatever he is at the moment. Uh, the other youngster coming through who didn't get a contract is Will Pekoski, who made his debut at the Sydney Cricket Ground in the New Year's Test this year. Um, he's had a, I think he's had seven concussions, a couple of um, spells away from the game for mental health reasons and just had his shoulder reconstructed, unfortunately. So he's out at the moment. But instead of giving him a contract and investing in him this year, they've said, he needs to earn it incrementally, which was a, a point of controversy because I think that most wise judges and former players want to see him opening alongside David Warner in that first Ashes test at Brisbane. So why not back the kid? But instead, they've said, um, continue to make those massive shield runs and see if you can join the team next year. Ath, have you seen a difference over the years from when you played in some of the techniques? They always look, Australian players, when I remember them, they're always so simple in the way they played. Have they got slightly more complicated in their method of late or not? I don't know whether they've got more complicated in their method. I would say, going back uh, to the when we were talking just then about that Australian A team in 94-5, I would say the Sheffield Shield then was considered the kind of gold standard of first-class cricket. Uh, and it was a very natural system. You had to play well in, in grade cricket to get through to your uh, state side. And then if you played well in your state side, you had a chance of getting into that Australian side. But it was very difficult to break in to that Australian side. So it was a very, very competitive system. And what they did, I think, was slightly tinker with it um, and slightly push young players before their time afterwards, rather than just allowing the cream to rise to the top and allowing that natural competitive process to take place. So it was the gold standard of first-class cricket. It's still pretty good, I imagine, but I'm not so sure it's quite considered as good as it was. Has the Big Bash had a detrimental effect or not on the standard of four-day cricket in Australia, Colin? I don't think it's quite as straightforward as that interesting point that Athens raises around the youth system and how that was used to inform national selection. For a long time, Stephen Smith was the, was the player who was beaten up for that. It was like, well, you were picked too early and it was the wrong call, but I suppose in the long run, um, the ends justified the means on that front. Uh, look, the Big Bash has been a revelation for underpinning the finances of Australian cricket, especially domestic cricket, and that's the same the world over with T20 competitions. But uh, the Shield, they, they tweaked it this year where they played the first four rounds all in South Australia it, with three grounds in Adelaide in close proximity to each other. Of course, only six teams, so that's quite, um, quite viable logistically. And it was for COVID reasons, but 
I think it worked as far as playing on hard, good, true tracks in Adelaide um, in a carnival-style environment where there was so much attention on the shield. In much the same way, we're going full circle, I suppose, with talking about streaming and county cricket. There was that kind of enthusiasm around the shield this year with everybody watching streams and, and Fox Cricket picking up some of the games as well, which meant there was so much more attention on the shield than there has been in, in previous seasons. So I suppose that's helping as well in terms of that scrutiny on the, on the next generation of players coming through and, and trying to replace players like Smith and Warner, who, uh, especially in the case of Warner, he's 34 this year. He won't be around forever. They need to find a way to replace guys like that. Colo, thank you very much for joining us. An excellent debut on the Cricket Show. Uh, we'll see you around in the summer. But after the break, we're going to be talking to a club legend, uh, Stan Eaton. Uh, we've been joined by Stan Heaton. Now, Stan is the chairman of Lower House Cricket Club and also the chairman of the Lancashire Junior League. Uh, so just tell us, Stan, exactly what sort of standard, what level is Lower House for a start? Well, we're in the first division of the Lancashire League. Um, so we like to think it's a reasonably high standard of amateur cricket. We're all unpaid apart from the professional. And... Um, Generally speaking, the club's done quite well in the last sort of 15 years, having gone 142 years without having won a trophy. But we've sort of made up for it since, um, since I think, <laughs> quite a badge of shame. But really, we were sort of half sad when we lost the tag. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but as I say, in the last 15 years, we've usually managed to, well, we've won the Cup, the Double, got to uh, share the Lancashire, all Lancashire Cup, won the T20. So... We've certainly booked our ideas up after 142 years of um, nothing. And so are you one of these people that's just been involved with the club, done it all just for the love of the game and the love of your club as well? Have you, how long have you been involved with them for? Well, I'm 62 now and started tallying at probably six or seven years of age. Uh, used to get dragged out of the local park to make the second 11 up so that they didn't get fined. Um, got into the first 11, aged 16, and retired from playing in 2002. Uh, so I could concentrate on bringing the juniors on. Plus, as well, um, injuries were taking the toll, and we, we had youngsters coming through, and they didn't want an old fossil blocking their progress. Stan, just tell us about uh, league cricket in Lancashire more generally. Obviously, I'm from Lancashire. When I was playing club cricket at Woodhouses, it was the Lancashire and Cheshire League, which no longer exists, and the Central Lancashire League, which was kind of regarded as probably the second best league after the Lancashire League. That doesn't exist either. So there's been a wholesale reorganisation of the kind of league structure in Lancashire. Yes, uh, I mean, it was a great shame that, that leagues uh, folded. The Bolton Association, I think, was the second oldest league in the world, and that uh, that became defunct. But I think that the reorganisation was was critical to the survival of league cricket. If you'd have asked me the question five years ago, was the situation healthy, I would have said no. The better sides were romping away from the weaker sides, and the weaker sides were really struggling. And as we know, if you're struggling, you lose your best players can't attract players, you lose your best juniors, the field good factor goes, and you lose your volunteers. 
So when we accepted applications from outside the league, we went to two divisions, and that's been marvellous because the top division is is decent quality amateur cricket, and the uh, second division allows those weaker clubs to actually compete, and instead of being hammered every every second week, they're actually competing amongst themselves, regrouping, uh, producing the feel good factor back again. So it's uplifted. Uh, the entire league uh, without shadow shadow of a doubt. Uh, I think now we've we've great grounds for optimism. And as chairman of the Lancashire Junior League, we have uh, almost 30 clubs. It's separate from the Lancashire League itself. We have almost 30 clubs, uh, 150 teams playing um, 1,500 fixtures and and 1,500 children participating in organised in organised cricket. If you throw into that as well the marvellous inception of All-Stars, uh, which has been a massive boost, I think, for most clubs, certainly those that do it, I- I'm optimistic. I think the situation's healthy. What sort of state generally would you say club cricket is in and what are the challenges, the day-in, day-out challenges of your local club, Stan? Well, finance is, uh, is always a, a lurking shadow. Uh, I have to say that the, the local councils and government during this pandemic have, uh, have looked after cricket clubs, certainly in this area, uh, and we're very grateful for that. I think that player retention uh, has become an issue. The day or my day where cricket in the summer was absolutely everything, you may have missed for your own wedding, but, um, but nowadays, of course, there are a lot more pressures uh, through family life, work, socialising. So player retention is an issue. Um, the, the guy that sort of plays first team cricket all his all his life and then slides back down, captain in the seconds and thirds, etc. They don't tend to exist anymore because having finished the first eleven career, it's time to give something back to the family. And I would also say that if those pressures are on on, on the players, they're also on the volunteers. And without cricket, without uh, volunteers, of course, amateur or semi-professional cricket clubs will really struggle. Where's uh, junior cricket at as well? Has it changed much over the years? Massively different, massively better in my opinion. Um, Back in the day, there wasn't much junior cricket. Certainly when I started, your only only junior game was if you got in the under-18s. Now we've got uh, under-9s playing right through to to under-18s. And I would say, with some exceptions, most, most league clubs pay great attention to their juniors. And in my opinion, if they neglect their juniors, their club will struggle for years to come. And we have certainly plenty of evidence of that. Uh, as I say, the All-Stars, the All-Stars, for instance, gives us a, a, a wonderful platform for, for coaching or dealing with those children that are below your under nine squad, for instance. So if they've never held a bat or a ball before, in the past it was quite difficult to know to know what to do with them in a coaching environment in a coaching environment. Whereas with the All Stars program, it's all there for you. So that's been a massive help. Where are you with um, girls cricket, Stan? Because uh, the ECB another initiative is their Dynamos, and they're trying to do it slightly different this year, where they're almost trying to have their girls Dynamo squad separate from the boys, where some of the smaller clubs in Essex are struggling to fill that. Are you struggling or are you a girls' cricket um, going from strength to strength? 
I think girls' cricket is going from strength to strength, and it's absolutely marvellous to see to see these young girls being as skillful as they are. We don't have a separate girls' team. We amalgamate all our girls into the the boys' teams or the mixed teams, if you will, right up to to under eighteens. We've had um, we've had girls play in the second eleven. We have a young girl called Liberty Heap, who's uh, been down to England training sessions. She's been successful in the second eleven as a sixteen as a sixteen year old, and the standard's very high. And she's a very good player. But we have we have girl players at all at all age groups, um, and more power to their elbow. I think it's absolutely wonderful because when cricket was struggling, bringing more people into the game, making the game more available to more people was absolutely crucial. And and, and girls and women, for that matter, have a massive role to play in cricket. Stan, can I ask about the links with the county club? Obviously, an ideal system would see a kind of pyramid effect, wouldn't it? You've got you've got club clubs around the county all feeling a connection towards the first class club. I'm not saying you're going to you're going to feed players in all the time, but there needs to be a connection there county club at the heart of it as well is the feeling around the county in Lancashire that the, the relationship between the top and the bottom of the game between the first class county club and the clubs around the county is healthy yes I think so the LCB or now the LCF have had a, a, a number of restructures in recent years and a number of uh, personalities that we had close contact with have, have left the organisation so we're rebuilding relationships with the newer people. Some of the older people are still there, of course. But I can't, I can't criticise uh, the Lancashire Cricket Foundation, which is obviously the representative of the, of the county itself. I can't criticise them for what they, they bring to, to league cricket. Uh, they are supportive. Um, they've never put up any obstructions. If you if you need anything, you only have to ask. So no, certainly no criticism for me. And I, and I think that once we get to know the new personalities, we'll be back. We'll be back to normal, and everything in the garden will be broken. I know the last year or so has been difficult with COVID, but in general, when you get to September, end of September, how would you describe? What would you say success for you and your club? Is it the title? Is it the place in the league? How do you describe success? Well, as the chairman, I think my first job is to ensure the survival of the club, uh, and we're happy with that. We we are well supported. We've seen hundreds of new people come into the ground last season when lockdown was eased, and, of course, now because we've got the biggest beer garden in town. Uh, so we're seeing <laughs> lots, lots of people uh, spending substantial amounts of money. So financially, we'll be okay. In terms of on the field, if the first 11 aren't in the top three, I'll be very disappointed. And we're expected to have a good cup run. Uh, all the captains in the league give their opinions before the start and only one of the uh, of the captains didn't mention us in dispatches. So we are expected to do well. Um, I'm more of a... Of a lower level um, follower, really. The third and fourth 11, which has the 15, 16, 17 year olds, is huge for me. 
And if they play good cricket and progress, even if the first 11 didn't win anything, I would be happy to see that the future's assured by those youngsters coming through and doing well. There's nothing better than seeing a, a young cricketer progressing. It's wonderful. Where are we with participation, Stan? We hear a lot of rumours. Cricket is dying. People aren't taking up cricket. What is it like at ground level? Are there numbers coming through? Is participation okay out there? Yes, uh, I would say so. I think um, I think the ECB miss a trick in a way uh, in that state school cricket is almost non-existent. And I know they had the chance to shine programme, but I could be quite critical of that. There's a vast number of children, if they were exposed to cricket, and thankfully a lot of them are through the All-Stars programme, the more kids we can expose to cricket, they love the game. Once, they, once they've seen it, once they've hit a four, once they've caught a catch or bowled somebody out, they're unstoppable. And if we tapped into that, the future will be assured without a shadow of a doubt. I, I think the future's, the future's assured. Yeah, I think the good thing as well is the ECB are desperate to do something about it as well and try and increase participation as much as they possibly can. Um, let's have a look at some of the things. We've asked the people to send in some clips of the games they've been playing in club cricket and we've picked out some of the better moments. Here's one for you, Nass. Chelmsford Cricket Club, Matt Cole, a one-handed catch. Watch this. What do you make of this, NASA? I mean, look at the catch. Look at the batsman's reaction in the background. That's what you do when you come to Essex. That's what happens at Chelmer Park, Chelmsford. Mate, it is the hotbed. Don't worry about Lancashire and all that stuff up north. Chelmsford is absolutely the place to play cricket, mate. One-handed catch. I don't think his own teammates could be believe that. Let's have a look at a replay. Let's have a look at that again. One-handed. I love the batsman's reaction. He's nailed it on the up through the covers. On your <laughs> <bike>. <laughs> yeah, that is an excellent catch. That's exactly what you do at Chelsea with that and lock the doors. Um, right, anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure that would be kept in, but anyway. Um, now we have a 15-year-old Finlay Townsend. Townsend, sorry. Hat-trick ball, ended up with five in five. Have a look at this for a celebration. <laughs> What's all the celebrations here? They start throwing up the hats and the, <laughs> and the shirts and the sweaters and the crowd on the pitch. Absolutely fantastic. But he's right He's right there, Stan, as well, isn't he, Because that's the good thing now. As tough as it's been for everyone, he's so good. When these cricket grounds properly open up again, the social side of a club is so important. That's what I remember at Beckenham. It was just not so much about the cricket. It was all your mates came from there. It's where it was the meeting point for everything. Totally agree. I think that the days of a cricket club being a sort of closed shop uh, for the captain and his pals are long gone. If you're not, and I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but if you're not a community cricket club, you're not doing it right and you're missing a trick. Uh, the community uh, want something to focus on. They want somewhere where they feel safe, where they can enjoy themselves, where they can hire a function room, where they can hold a business meeting. You've got to make yourself available to that community. Um, a lot of clubs now up here uh, and probably all over the country are, are, are having bonfires, uh, which the community come to 
Uh, and the more you can open your club to the community, I think the better you are. Right, last one. Back to Essex, Nass, Colchester, I think this is. What's happening here? Well, look at the quality of the streaming, first of all, of club cricket, but not the quality of the delivery. <laughs> Who would be an umpire? I mean, the good and bad of club cricket. The poor old umpire has to stand out there, and the poor old bowler looks thoroughly embarrassed there. <laughs> well, I reckon just keep sending them in to at Sky Cricket's Twitter, uh, because even throughout the summer, I reckon in the test matches, whatever it is, uh, if you've got some batting, some good bowling, some bad, some funny, whatever, keep sending them in. And hopefully we'll be able to get them on either the show or throughout the summer in the cricket that we show. Stan, thank you very much. Best of luck uh, with everything this summer. The whole game doesn't survive without people like you. I'd imagine you've been absolutely brilliant for that club and the game in Lancashire in general. Ath, as always, thank you. Same to you, NASA. Uh, but not much more to tell you other than the Hussein and Key cricket show. Ath's been on it as much now. Maybe he should get a name check. But anyway, that's 7pm next Thursday. Until then, go and score some runs and take some wickets. Sky Sports Cricket. Feel it all. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Thanks for listening. doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice the opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.